Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. Well, welcome to the Inside MFA podcast. Uh, my name is Adam Jones, conservation specialist on the agronomy team here at MFA at Home Office. My name is Cameron Horine, staff agronomist with MFA. And uh, our guest today uh, for our inaugural episode uh, is uh, is our precision agronomy manager, uh, Thad Becker. So I'll let you introduce yourself, Thad. Hi, you did it. No. <laughs> Precision Agronomy Manager, yeah, Thad Becker with MFA here. So, yeah, I just help make sure our data programs that we use for soil sampling and other things like that go smoothly. Gotcha. How how long have you been around? How long have you worked for MFA? I've been around MFA since 2001. So, I have been around the block a time or two, ran a fertilizer plant for a few years, and then uh, came in to do technical support for our precision software program and just kind of naturally moved into, you, you kind of accumulate responsibilities as you spend more time with the company. It seems like you don't ever <laughs> get rid of anything, but yeah. you kind of accumulate more yeah. responsibilities can, until they I finally decided to upgrade my title to <laughs> precision agronomy manager. That's nice. And so you farm a little bit on the side too, right, Thad? So tell us about that. Cause I think that ties in really well with what you're doing. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, live, on the farm where I grew up and, uh, yeah, still help my father farm some today. So yeah, we do row crops mostly when my uncle retired, the cows went away. So that's a little sad, but it gives dad time to do some other things. But yeah, corn, your typical corn, soybean and wheat when we have to type of thing. Okay. <laughs> wheat when we have to, I like that. One of these days, maybe we'll fix that. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's definitely a central and North Missouri thing is wheat when we have to. Um, so I think what we want to kind of get into today is just is timing of the year, talking a little bit about soil sampling, kind of why we do it, what we're looking to find. Um, but I think the first thing or kind of good background information is I want to try to make this where anybody um, can listen to this without having a lot of background knowledge of, of soil sampling or fertility or MFA or, or anything, um, but but you kind of spearhead our, our NutriTrack program at MFA. So do you want to just kind of walk through kind of what that is to start with? Um, maybe there's a there's different stages to that, um, and so that way we kind of have that background as we kind of talk about soil sampling. Sure, and I, I think, yeah, primarily, yeah, I just want to reinforce how important soil sampling is. It, uh, NutriTrack is, when you break it down, what it's really about it's about trying to understand fertility in your field and what you know we go out and we put on p and k every year and it's all about understanding why we're doing what we're doing why we go out and put potash and dat on the field the uh, nutri-track programs nothing more than just being really rigorous about the way we're collecting data and trying to put some professionalism behind understanding that data and interpreting it and just no fancy wizardry or rocket science behind any of this stuff it's all basic well thought out university-based recommendations that we utilize it's just at a scale that computers allow us to take advantage of sure um you know when we come down to it you know why do we even want a soil sample it's really just 
you need to understand what you have in the field before you go out and put nutrients on. Uh, there's nothing wrong with throwing out what grandpa always did, I guess. I shouldn't say that. Maybe there is something wrong with it, but it, uh, <laughs> well, it's like a lot of depleted soils around Missouri for sure. But yeah, it, uh, it, if it's kind of like checking the oil in the tractor or something like that, you know, you don't just go and throw a quarter oil in the tractor every time you start it up. Right. You know, I was always taught you go, you pull the dipstick and if it needs oil, then you take care of it. And it, uh, and, you know, we're going to need fertilizer more often than we need oil. At least I hope I'm probably going to sell that tractor if I need to put yeah. oil in every year yeah, or every time. But don't the, sell the farm if you don't ever have to put fertilizer on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's what we're looking for. And the NutriTrack program at its core is a two-and-a-half-acre grid sampling program. We can break that into more stages. We call them stages. It's kind of a misnomer in some ways, but we, the basic entry point is to go out and get your fields grid soil sampled. We take samples every two and a half acres. It's a really good trade-off for us as far as uh, to get a good understanding of the field and get at an economical cost, get enough data to have some value and, uh, and to be perfectly honest, it's the easiest way to get good coverage of the field rather than a lot of people do zone sampling. Right. And, you know, we can go off on a lot of tangents today on a lot of different topics. And maybe I'll be back on the podcast to talk about different topics at different times. But for us in Missouri, in our trade territory, zone or grid sampling works very well. And zone sampling is really, you know, works well for various reasons. And, Places like the Dakotas, where we don't have a lot of man-made history in those okay. fields. So what? And, when you say man-made history, I assume that's something that's shown up in our fertility levels maybe in the field, something that we're picking up yeah. in our soil samples. Yeah. What, what kind of stuff could you, we run into or do we typically run into? So, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, everybody's seen how many fence rows have disappeared in the last 20, 30 years. You know, a lot of... Farms used to be farmed in 20-acre chunks, and now are farmed as 80s and 160s. And what I can tell you is I see a lot of maps with straight lines, and Mother Nature doesn't work in straight lines. Right. And so when you see a straight line in a fertility map, you know that there's some history in there that we'd have to go back and look at some old, uh, talk to landowners from 40, 50 years ago to probably understand what those things are and then the other thing is just there's not livestock in every barn lot by every field like yeah. we used to have yep. 50 60 80 years ago and where their manure went still shows up today sure and so no i i think that's absolutely right you're definitely not the only farm that's lost livestock in the last you know 50 or 60 years um you know our my home place is the same way. We used to have horses and cows and ran a swine operation and the whole rig. And uh, none of that, none of that exists anymore. There's like, I think my brother has a couple donkeys. That's about all that's yeah. left around yeah. our place. Not much, not enough to make a fertility impact anymore. Yeah. So. And so, no, you're absolutely, that's why grid sampling fits well. Because grid sampling does very well for picking up man-made differences. Zone sampling has a good fit where you don't have a lot of that history okay. and you can kind of look at your 
soil types and topography and those kinds of things and make zones that make sense and fit yield environments, soil environments, and those kinds of things. And to be perfectly honest, from a training standpoint, it's a lot harder to make a good set of zones. I was just going to say, it sounds like you'd have to have a lot more background on the farm, background maybe with the grower, mm -hmm. background on soil types, all that kind of stuff to be able to set up those zones, right? Whereas grid points, you know, we can just GPS a spot and say, go there and pull a sample. Yeah, 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 you're exactly right. And that's, yeah, they, I mean, zones are typically sold as a cost savings, but my experience has been that in order for the main hours we got to put into developing good zones, yeah, it's cheaper to go out and pull a few more samples. Right. On that, but. So knowing ahead of time, um, the side that's going to go across the room here, I, I again, I, w I want to make sure that we cover enough that, or you cover enough that we don't lose anybody kind of in the, so I, I want to ask, kind of explain a composite too with those two. You, you talked about grid sampling and mm -hmm. you talked about zone soil sampling. Um, so can you kind of hit on what a composite is? Because that's typically what you know what folks have done a lot of times in the past. Sure, sure. Yeah, if we historically think about soil sampling, that's what it would have been. Would have been going out and I went and I pulled the sample on the field I'm farming. And the uh, idea is. To get a good composite sample, what I would do is represent no more than 20 acres and bounce around that 20 acres back and forth and pull 20 to 30 cores, mix them all up in a bucket and send that in a bag, whereas then get my results back. Okay. Whereas we grid sample, we're going to break that up into a lot smaller and our points, we're going to drop a point in there and the way we typically manage it is we promote smart soil sampling where that 20 acres is going to be broken up into seven or eight samples points and as we go to each sample point they're going to be centrally located we're going to break that up into a two and a half acre block mm -hmm. the computer is going to guide us to the center of that two and a half acre block okay. we're going to look around and use our heads and say, does this spot make sense? You know, is this where I need to pull a sample? And, you know, if it's sitting in a terrace channel or right on the edge of the waterway, something like that, we train our guys to say, hey, let's move 50 foot Buffer up the hill. Or something. Let's, let's get away. You know, if I've got a bunch of erosion where I'm sitting, that's probably not representative of that entire two and a half acres. If I got a gully here, or if it's a spot where I've got a big deposition, like a terrace channel, typically what we yeah. see there is we've got a large amount of soil that is washed down to the bottom of that terrace channel. That water sits in ponds, drops the soil out. We've got a lot of topsoil there. Those nutrient levels are going to show probably abnormally high Yeah, yep. for that area. And so what we want to do is just move off that, get something that represents that two and a half acres. And the method, instead of going across that entire two and a half acres, we're going to use that point, go in a 30-foot radius around that point, and pull 10, 8 to 10 cores. And that'll give us a good idea what the soil test or what the true P and K numbers are for that spot in the field. And okay. we just use the computer to tell us, based on what I know about all the points, what the soil test is in between them. Okay, so that that's what causes a lot of the, the shading and colors on the maps that you're doing. Then, so that's the kind of the computer 
interpolating what's going on between the two points that, cause, you know, we may have one that's a pH is significantly different mm. between the two points, but you know, the computer will model a line through the middle there. So that, that's kind of what it's doing. Then it's just kind of reading, reading the room, essentially reading the whole map. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. so I, we get into a lot of spatial statistics and how that, and a lot of it's above my head and above, I guess, above my pay grade in a way, but the, uh, what happens is, so the computer's gonna pick a spot in the middle of the field. We break that field up into 30-foot grids. And so that whole 40 acres, let's say, is broken up into 30-foot by 30-foot squares. Okay. So like I said, we sampled every two and a half acres, which is more like 330-foot by 330-foot, I believe, yeah. something along those lines. and. Uh, so we've broken that down even more. The computer breaks that down. And it just, basically what it does is it calculates, sits and looks at that grid and says, this soil test point is 300 foot away from me. This other soil test point's 400 foot away from me. And this third soil test point's 200 foot away from me. And I'm gonna give the most weight to the soil test point that's closest to me. And it's not exactly an average, but in effect, what it's doing is averaging all the soil test points around it and giving weight to the closest, giving the most weight to the closest soil test point okay. to sense. it. And then, so that's what makes those gradients. And okay. so as you're close to a point, we're going to assume that's probably what that soil test is. And as we move farther away from it, we're going to start averaging what's happening around me with the other soil test points. And that's going to carry more weight gotcha. in there. Yeah, that makes sense. And so then can you talk about, so if I resampled that same field, then would I want to go back and do the same point again? Or do I want to move that? Or how do I, like, does that mess kind of with how the computer analyzes some of that? So, no, I mean, that depends more on your goal okay. and the uh, what you want to do. Because we don't, two and a half acres do not capture all the variability of the field. Sure. So if I go back and resample a field, I've got two ways to look at that. I can either look at it as I want to use this next sampling period as a report card to see what I've accomplished in the last four years, mm -hmm. or we can look at it as this is my opportunity to capture a little more variability, and I may shift those points slightly. Okay. In our program, we can go either way. I, I've got good feelings about both of those methods sure. and doing that. There's nothing wrong with either way of approaching it. So we haven't necessarily standardized gotcha. our methods on that. Um, well, another way to capture more variability would be to decrease your grid size, mm -hmm. right? Correct. I mean, is that practical? At what level, I guess, does that, I mean, I know you've kind of set the level of two and a half acres. Well, it just depends on practicality. <laughs> yeah. <I'm sure>. yeah. <laughs> just depends on how big your check is, I <laughs> suppose. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, Nutrients vary tremendously from field to field and within our trade area, how much they vary within the field. You know, if we went up to, you know, now I'm creating a lot of dead air here because I'm thinking about this as we talk, but that in general, two and a half acres will be settled on because it's the best balance between cost time it takes to implement yeah. and capturing most of the variability. If I had unlimited amount of time and unlimited amount of money, 
I'd probably take that down to an acre or a half acre because that does just help you define that more. And there's people out there, I mean, in some test plots, uh, we did a project for a group, oh, it's been several years ago, where I think where they were on uh, quarter acre grids down there, I think that was on some plots we did on some 40 acre fields to try and really fine tune that variability. Uh, the uh, It's interesting to see that it, to a certain point there's diminishing returns there. And the other thing you gotta consider is that we're, we're managing a natural system. Uh, I'm really going to open a can of worms here, and I don't want to decrease anybody's uh, confidence in their soil test results or anything like that. But when we take a soil test, we're not measuring empirically how many total pounds of phosphorus or how many total pounds of potassium are in that soil. What that lab is doing is trying to emulate your root system by, in the case of phosphorus, putting a acid on that soil and leaching phosphorus out. That acid closely matches the pH or the, the acids that roots naturally exude to take up phosphorus. And so they're gonna see how much phosphorus comes out of that soil. It's a natural system and that phosphorus is constantly in a cycle changing in forms that's readily available and easily broken down by that acid to some that are tied up in soils not only are our nutrient values aren't really spatially variable by that i mean they change as we move across the landscape of the field they're also temporally variable sure in that weather conditions how much organic matter changed or microbes in the soil are constantly moving what's readily plain available around that soil sample is our best way to tell what those plants are seeing and what we can take up. And in general, it's, it's really proven out well. Um, again, I know we probably didn't want to have a two hour podcast no, here, but we very well could if we yeah. <laughs> keep yeah. keep going down yeah. here. But it, uh, cause yeah. we can talk about how the relationship, how the soil test and the, all of our research is based off of response trials to fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And so, so what's been done and, you know, we've got a lot of our forefathers to think that we've got data going back from the twenties and thirties and forties where basically what they did is they went out and why they, you know, they had the foresight to do it or, you know, we've had the, ability to stay standardized we've always taken samples at a similar depth and then once we knew what that soil test level was based on these calibrations so we'd go out and do a for, for us a bray one phosphorus is what we standardize on and what we right. use and so that's that that's just the acid and the test method that they're using is a bray and they basically went out and said a bray one soil test on this six and two-thirds inch core of soil was a five and if i put 60 pounds of phosphorus on it this was my yield response and we just did that a whole bunch right university professors at many different states many different 
regions of even our state and the University of Missouri has, has taken lots of those trials over the year in a variety of soil test ranges and they plot it and they get a curve. Now it's a messy. If you just yeah. look at the points, it's a messy scatter plot, but you very much can see the trend where it's a curve that plateaus. So we start out as we get a low soil test level. If we don't put fertilizer on, we see a reduction in yield. In many cases, if I get down to my very low soil test, it's somewhere in the, I'm only capable of achieving 70, 60 to 70% of my yield at optimum soil test level in that same field. Okay. And once I put fertilizer on, it corrects that deficiency. Okay. Well, I think that's a good, let's, um, so when you go to each one of these grid points and pull, pull a sample, I assume you'd use the same, how many cores usually are you talking in each one of those? On those, eight to 10. Eight to 10. Okay. So we let's pull our 10 cores, we put it into the bag. Mm -hmm. What, um, when we ship that off, so what all are you sampling? What all are we sampling for and why? And what are we not sampling for and why when we send that off? And then, okay. Yeah. I think yeah, that no, that's a good a question. Yeah. We're the, getting, we're into the, um, yeah response curves type stuff. I think yeah. that'll get us there. So, so yeah, when we send soil test off, what we're really looking for is soil, basic soil properties and some of our soil analysis that we can correct. Okay. The soil properties, I category, there's three big ones, organic matter, CEC, and pH. And so of those organic matter and CEC, we don't we're not going to change those necessarily. We can, long-term management can have some effect on those, especially the organic matter. But pH is the biggie I always, that's usually my first place I'm going to look when I look at a soil test. Okay. pH is just, again, how acidic the soil is. Right. We want a pH of somewhere in the mid-sixes typically for okay. row crop production. Uh, we actually vary depending on crops. You know, something like alfalfa really likes a neutral pH. In a fescue hay field or a warm season grass hay field, those grasses do relatively well in a slightly acidic soil, and so it's not as critical that we maintain that higher pH. Higher um, Seems like that's there's a quick kind of there's a quick cliff that you can jump off there too with pH correction. It seems like as well, so you don't want to get too too carried away if you are close yeah. to that neutral balance either. Yeah, yeah, and so pH is the one that by far makes the most sense that if you're going to grid sample, if you're look, if you're thinking about lime in your field, it's a no brainer to go out and do some intensive sampling on your field. That one's, I, when we have looked at data in the past, I, 75 to 80% of the time, lime savings pays for the grid sampling program on that. And so the, uh, the, pH is, yeah, exactly like you say, Adam, if we go too high, if we're going out, we've got a seven pH already and we put two tons of lime on top of that, we're not only are we wasting our money on lime, we're really shooting our foot and shooting ourselves in the foot from a product efficacy standpoint or really carryover concerns is more of a turn with some chemicals that tend to be more active in a high pH environment. And then the other thing that pH does, and the reason I look at it first is that it affects all our other nutrients. We tend to see the availability of our other nutrients, our phosphorus, potassium, especially our micronutrients, 
are very much driven by what the soil pH is. And as we get a low pH, especially down into the low fives, we really start to see a lot of our other nutrients being hammered by uh, typically it's free metals in the soil. Iron, aluminum start to become very active and they tie up gotcha. our other nutrients. They compete with the plant roots for those nutrients. And so, uh, and in a high pH, we can see those issues as well. Right. Typically. Right. And so it's, typically that's a calcium interaction okay. with the other nutrients. And so, so we want to correct that, but we don't want to over, you know, it's not, sure. you know, if I throw on an extra 50 pounds of phosphorus, it's not really going to hurt anything in most situations. And so, but if I throw on an extra two tons of lime where I don't need it, that can be a bad deal. Yeah, really puts you in reverse. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned organic matter, which the, those, I mean, that's just kind of shown in a percentage form. So that's mm -hmm. pretty easy to in, understand and interpolate that. Um, you talked about pH. Can you go into CEC a little bit? I know that's one that sometimes folks skip over, but pretty darn important to sure. like when we're managing nutrients that are going on that field. Mm -hmm. So CEC is stands for cation exchange capacity. Okay. I'll give you the technical definition is just soil is negatively or negatively charged as we have more clay or really clay particles are negatively charged in the soil. All soils have some clay particles in it. As you increase the amount of clay particles and negative charges in that soil, you're able to hold on to more cations which are most, a lot of our nutrients, micronutrients, potassium, um, and those things are positively charged. And that's what the glue that kind of holds them into the soil and that and those negative charges on the soil. And uh, as we, uh, as I said, as we increase clay, we increase those, it affects our other nutrients. It affects how much potassium we need in the soil, how much is available. And all that and so i really the easy thing is if you see a low number yeah. you've got very sandy soils if Sand. you see a high number you've got a heavy clay so we range anything from i've seen 40s and 50s and some very tight gumbos in missouri river bottoms to gotcha. sand blows where we get down into the threes and fours mm. on yeah. a cec and so that's it you know sandy would be less than seven or eight okay. typical missouri soil with a clay loam loam is probably going to be somewhere between a 10 and a 16 okay and then once you start getting into some of those clays you're getting into the 20s and it's, 30s it's heavy fast yeah it? okay yeah. all right so that's kind of the the physical properties a lot of times that we're we're doing then what mm -hmm. nutrients are we testing so, for so nutrients we look at are p and k which are the primary macronutrients that we fertilize for outside of nitrogen Okay. And then we also look at zinc. We'll get a sulfur number back. I'll come back to that. But really, the big three I'm looking at in a standard soil test, PK, zinc. Okay. And so those are our macro or micro, macro. Those are those important crop available nutrients that are typically deficient in our trade area that we can correct with fertilizer sources. 
And so the phosphorus, like I said, you want me to get in onto what we're actually seeing on there, or you have how far do you deep do we want to go? So <laughs> you can go as deep as the, you want to. The the phosphorus that we get, we get uh, we work with Midwest Labs on all of our soil tests. Today we can work with other labs too. It uh, I just like to be standardized so we can all work and together on it and uh, can all look at the same results. And the one thing you'll find is that each lab does things slightly different, and so you can't. To a certain extent, we can compare lab to lab analysis, but every lab's. I shouldn't say every lab, but a lot of labs run their own little quirks to the soil samples and so we can't necessarily compare them directly but uh at midwest we get what's called a bray one phosphorus test and a bray two phosphorus test by default and the way i like to think of that is they're described as bray one is putting a mild acid maybe putting some limit juice on there and seeing how much phosphorus we can leach out and then we come back and then they'll dump battery acid on that soil and see how much phosphorus jumps out at us then on that, and they'll measure it both times. And what that gives us is the Bray-1 is what all our soil test calibrations are based off of. So those yield response trials I talked about, right. our recommendations utilize a Bray-1 soil test for their calibration curves. And so that's what we look at to say, this is what the plant's typically seeing. The Bray 2 gives us an opportunity to say, it doesn't tell us obviously everything that all the phosphorus that's in the soil, but it's a close saying this soil has some reserve phosphorus. We call it the reserve phosphorus test. And we can look at it, and it's predominantly troubleshooting. Uh, I think Midwest runs it. They just do it as a check for themselves. Okay. They can do that. They're looking for certain ratios in that. And typically it's about a one to two ratio okay. in typical, what we'd see in typical soil test levels. As you get extremely high or extremely low, those ratios can change some, but uh, but they look at that and say, oh, if that ratio gets way out of whack, then they're gonna do something different and look at that soil test again. We're looking at it too. We get into a situation in the Missouri River bottoms where we've got a lot of free calcium and a lot of high pH soils. Okay. And what happens in those soils is that phosphorus is tied up by calcium. And our Bray-1 soil test is always gonna be low in those situations. Hmm. And so we've got that set up in our equations to recognize when we get a high Bray-2 value. And it'll just basically say, let's change our rec here, let's reevaluate, and we're gonna put on a little less phosphorus because it doesn't make sense economically or agronomically hmm. to dump more phosphorus on this soil. It's just going to fix it. Yeah. The calcium's going to grab it, take it away. And so we'll change our method there. Right. Uh, no, it is, it is interesting. I remember one day we looked up the pH of the Missouri rivers, like eight or something like that. You would not yeah. think, um, just, you don't, you don't assume that when you mm -hmm. drive over the bridge, you know, but that water's out there on the landscape and all over those fields all the time. I mean, look at last year. Mm -hmm. So, and the water table is just naturally sure. higher. The water table is high too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the time. And so it's just constantly getting limed underneath, upside yeah, down. Absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah. No. Right. <laughs> and so, so that's kind of phosphorus. Okay. What we do there, potassium, is our other big 
macronutrient that we fertilized for in the fall, or we used soil, soil test. The, uh, and it, uh, that one's pretty straightforward. The interesting thing about it is that we look at CEC in combination with potassium. And so as, okay. like I said, potassium's a cation, positively charged, that's how, that's how we keep it attached in the soil. And so as we uh, have more clay content, higher CEC in the soil, it takes more potassium. You can think of that as, you can think of those clay particles as magnets out there in the field. They are magnets to sure. effect. And uh, as we have more magnets out there, there's a stronger charge in that field holding on to that potassium. It's harder for that plant to pull those positive charges off that soil. So we've got to have a higher level of potassium in those fields to, I see. Yeah, to make sense. it easy for the plant to take it up. Um, the other nutrient I look at on there is zinc. And that's just the common nutrient, micronutrient that we can look at the soil test to, to correct effectively and tend to see it's show up in corn. Okay. And so we'll... As deficient, we'll, you mean? As deficient. Okay. So we're just looking at that and we'll make recommendations based on that as well. I think probably the, what that leaves is probably the question is, what about the other nutrients that I didn't list off? Yeah. You know, nitrogen, obviously being the one that everybody thinks about, mm -hmm. especially on your corn fields and hay fields. And the thing about nitrogen is all forms of nitrogen in the soil are looking to become nitrate, negatively charged. We talked about our soil being negatively charged. What does that mean? The soil and nitrate repel each other. It's constantly moving through the soil. And so we can't necessarily, we can take a soil test and measure nitrogen levels in the soil, but it doesn't have a whole lot of meaning very long. I shouldn't say it doesn't, it's a good troubleshooting tool, but we can't use that for more than a month or two. Right, because we'll so, flush it through the, we use so much rain, flush yeah, it through the system. Yeah, yeah, we're in a system or rain-fed system here in Missouri that, flushes that out and really our entire trade territory as you move south we sure. get more rain yeah fall that you just can't count on any nitrate in the soil even the ammonium the ammonium in the soil is constantly being converted to nitrate as well right and so we're gonna flush that out and so i you know grid sampling we're doing that every four years and so i for sure would never want to look at the soil test from six months ago much less 12 months ago or three years ago for a, mm -hmm. for a nitrogen recommendation sulfur the same situation sulfur is something we see more and more and see quite a bit of you know i would say especially early in the season i have seen more sulfur deficiencies than i've seen nitrogen deficiencies in the past year or two later in the season nitrogen is always the big one that shows up right that plant really takes it up but especially Sulfur has shown up more and more lately, but it's the same way. It's negatively charged in the soil. And so we can't, at least the test we're running, it doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. Right. So yeah. let's think about that, though, because I know that a lot of guys have been putting on elemental sulfur for years on years. And they say, oh, well, I put this on. I'm just going to continue to build up my sulfur so I don't have to worry about it. But if we're testing it because it's a, it's being put into sulfate form or losing it, kind of. Where does that put us at? So, so yeah, 
sulfate, the, the test we should do, I should say, is sulfate. We are not right. looking at elemental sulfur in the, right. or the other forms of sulfur yep. in the soil. And uh, what, so yeah, the soil test is not super helpful in understanding our past management. I will tell you that, and I think what you're getting at, Cameron, is that elemental sulfur does take some time to break down. Absolutely. And it takes multiple years in some cases. If we're putting on yep. uh, 15 pounds elemental sulfur, that's that sulfur is going to gradually be breaking down over the next three years, probably, is sure. kind of the response curves I think I remember seeing. Yep. And so if we do that annually over time, yeah, we kind of build up a where we're constantly breaking that down. I don't have a good way to test for that. And I would probably say that a, a good sulfur program is one that you just get in the habit of doing in it. As long as you understand looking at your crop, making sure there's, you know, that's something where a good consultant or even yourself getting out in that field, looking at it several times, getting out there weekly, looking at that field, seeing if you're getting some of that yellow, pale yellow leaves and that, especially early season, even grabbing some tissue tests to understand where you're at. That's probably a better sulfur program in my mind. And then then looking at soil test. Yeah. 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 And I, I would agree. I would say that, you know, questions that have been asked for me and, you know, I know others have fielded is, well, if I just put out this elemental sulfur, isn't that going to just kind of keep taking over in time because it's going to break down and stuff? Well, we got to think about how our corn yields have been increasing over the years and stuff. And we're still putting that same rate of 15 pounds of sulfur, elements of sulfur out. We're not really building up. So sure, that's kind yeah. of what I wanted to get to was is sulfur is a lot like nitrogen. We have to kind of manage it, manage it for what crop mm -hmm. we're planting. And we need to treat it as a yearly um, yeah. nutrient instead of just trying to build yeah. it up. Yeah, and something that's very timely too. I mean, it's Absolutely. we got to pay attention to what we're doing elemental if i was putting sulfur down this time of the year i obviously wouldn't want to throw down ammonia sulfate right immediately negative form it's going to be gone just flushes right through it's going to flush right through you know and so yeah we're going to be looking for something that contains some elemental in it and then especially you know i'm i'm a big fan of top dressing corn wheat everything you know the when we can the closer we can time those nutrients to our uptake, the better off we are, especially from a, I'm agronomic and stewardship standpoint. It just makes sense sure. to me. Sure. Cool. So, um, I think that that's pretty much everything we end up with at, at MFA that comes back on the soil test. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. The other thing we kind of ignore and get a lot of questions on is okay. a lot of those micronutrients. So, okay. Iron, copper, manganese was a big one about ten years ago. Where there was a big, there's there's always the the micronutrient of the of the year. It seems like <laughs> okay. that, that somebody's talked about somewhere. Or there's been something sure. that, and uh, in general, those those type of deficiencies are very localized, very regional. Okay. And what we found is that we don't traditionally see them in our trade territory barring a pH issue or, um, you know, I, I believe we have seen some fields that have been responsive to boron and some of those things. I should say that boron yeah. is mobile in the soil as well. And so that's the one that... Especially when you're thinking about what crop you're using. I mean, yeah. if you think about, if you're raising alfalfa, boron yeah. 
making sure you're checking the boron in your soil test. Yep. Yep. So yeah, very crop specific, specific and, uh, and those kinds of things. And so that's where uh, you need somebody that's, I, you know, that's had some experience and knows your local conditions to help you with your yeah. fertilizer recommendations. Well, and I've looked at enough soil test results that a lot of times your, you know, your manganese level is generally not what's holding up crop production, right? There's probably, yeah. there's probably something else going on there. Very rarely do you see results that are like, oh man, yeah. pH is perfect. My phosphorus levels are great. Mm-hmm. My potassium levels are great. It must be the manganese. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It doesn't seem like, yeah. like there's always a lot of other things going mm-hmm. on there. And so. the other issue we've got with a lot of these micronutrients is there's not the years of response, fertility response trials that we've had with things like phosphorus and potassium. And so, I mean, I've got a training example that I kind of walk our guys through where we're talking about the different optimum soil test levels. And there's broadly wide agreement about what optimum soil test level is for phosphorus and potassium. You know, there's some differences. Everybody's got their own little spin, what they'd like to see. But in general, it's very close, you know, within, you know, nobody's, you know, two or three times what, you know, there's not that that you need twice as much phosphorus as I recommend. Right. The, uh, but you look at something like manganese and I just pulled a couple of them and I've got one source that says one part per million is optimum. And then another source that says 10 part per million is what you need. There's a 10 X difference in That's... what they're recommending for <laughs> soil test levels. And so, yeah. you know, how do I make a good recommendation? That such I don't have a whole lot of confidence that my soil test is telling me a whole lot about. And so what I like to see on those, if you're really pushing yield and you're really trying to manage those fine tuned things and you're absolutely right, Adam, first thing I got to get right is pH, pK, and any other known issues that I have in my area. Right. And uh, once I do those, then I can focus on micros and then, you know, yeah, maybe we do want to take a soil test that includes those micros, but I'm a big proponent of doing some NTs and tissue sampling and see how those levels track. See if you have a deficiency, I see guess. See if you have a deficiency before showing you do that. up. Yeah. And then yeah. If, if it was a field that was grid sampled, you probably wouldn't need to do those micronutrients at all grid points, would you? I mean, would, I, probably not, no. Would you just take I mean, one of the grid points and, and yeah, maybe so, pull? So typically what I've suggested is that in most of the labs are pretty good about that. Midwest is especially to say, I just like the micro package run on one out of every five or one out of every 10 samples. Okay. One out of every 10, typically, you know, we get into smaller fields. We're probably going to go one out of every five. So you get a couple yeah. points mm-hmm. on there, but yeah. you're, uh, you're just spot checking a few spots and seeing okay. kind of what your background levels are naturally. Sure. So kind of back to, um, back to pulling the samples, you know, in, in kind of the north part of our trade territory, or I guess that's that's probably not exactly true, but essentially a lot of times we, we think about pulling samples kind of right after the crop comes off in the fall. Is there is there a better time? Is there a worse time? And as far as crop production wise, kind of what's the optimal time? And then maybe on like a pasture or a, a hay field or something, is there kind of a different optimum time there? Or, or does it really matter? Today. <laughs> yesterday is the optimum time it's kind of like planting a tree sure it, uh, <laughs> the, no i mean honestly any soil test better than no soil test i had mentioned that you know it's a natural system and mother nature has some seasonal variation there is uh i hesitate to say that it's predictable 
but there is kind of a natural rhythm to our soil test values in that crops are taking up nutrients out of that field throughout the summer. We've kind of got an active profile and we've removed some and then so if I'm really going to speak in generalities, and this is an extreme generality, you're not going to see this if you sample one field for one year. The In general, our soil test values kind of decrease through the summer as the plants take them up. And then as we go into the fall and our stover and our residue breaks down, we gradually kind of increase those soil test values and they peak into the spring. And then we start to draw it down again and just kind of a natural rhythm there. Okay. That again, that's not in any way, shape, or form what you're going to see if you do this on one field. Right. But if we get enough volume, that's probably what, in general, what you're going to see. Right. The, and so, saying that, seasonality does play a role in how you soil test. And in general, and I, you know, I say there's a curve there. It's not a huge swing. If you've got a very low soil test in this fall and I come back in the spring, you're not going to see that soil test move into the medium range. You're probably not going to see it move into the low range unless you've got a something that's kind of a borderline soil. Okay. It's just, it's going to change a few percentage points one way or another. And, uh, and so in general, yeah, if I haven't soil tested and I'm wanting to do something yet, get it done now. The, you know, the timing of it, we do most of our soil sampling in the fall or try and get it done in the fall. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that just like I say, I want to get it when I can. That's when the crop's off. It's very easy to get across that field and be most efficient pulling that soil sample. And uh, then get the results back and have it in time to make actionable decisions with right. it this right. season yet. There's a, you get north and, uh, Really, I don't know where the break is, but it doesn't take too far to get into Iowa and north. And those folks are predominantly on a spring sampling schedule. And when I say spring, I mean after the crops planted. Oh, wow. The majority of the samples pulled in that part of the world, especially I think in Minnesota, is sometime in May after the crop's already growing. And they're Mm -hmm. running through there pulling samples for that next fall, just because they physically don't have the fall winter season that we kind of have down in Missouri where we can actually get those samples pulled right and get them done interesting so we talked about you know the seasonal kind of changes and stuff but is there you know if if you were going to sample every four years should you be kind of conscious about sampling after the same crop or is that going to you know if you're in a crop rotation should you is there going to be a difference if you sample after corn and then you next time you sample after beans not a not a hugely significant yes if if I had an ideal world and I sampled in October four years ago following soybeans, I would want to sample in October again following soybeans the next time I pull those samples. Is it going to be real critical? No, not really. I mean, you get back to the case that I said, I mean, in general, those seasonal variations exist and those following the same crop, we're going to have some things that are same, but Gosh, you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to pull those samples. If you try and look at it that, uh, that, uh, if you're trying to be that, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the word, uh, for literal and try to think that 
you're going to be chasing that number exactly and you think it's that I had a five part per million if I come back and it's going to be five part per million next time. It's right. not. It's going to be six or seven or mm -hmm. something that we're not going to be able to be that. It's not an exact, exact science. Yeah. We're looking at those trends. We're trying to chase the overall gradual averages of that soil. And the idea behind it is to make sure that we've got enough there that we're taken care of and it's not the limiting factor in that field. We'll let Mother Nature's rainfall be the, we want Mother Nature's rainfall to be the limiting yeah. factor. Sure. So kind of on the timing piece also though, when we think about the last two years have been pretty drastic. This year we had really good crop years. Mm -hmm. um, it was a great growing season, but then the year before, you know, especially a lot of bottom grounds, we had flooding and stuff. How would, how would either a major flooding event or, you know, maybe a drought event where, you know, you're affecting how much crop input you're pulling out. Should that affect when you go back and re time your soil sampling? So, so the flood, I would tell you, it depends on if you move dirt or not. Especially down the Missouri River bottom where some of those levees were broken, we we did we moved. We either took off inches sure. of topsoil or we deposited <laughs> inches of topsoil or inches yeah. of feet of sand. You know, yeah. uh, yeah. and definitely, I mean that that top we got different topsoil there than we did the last time we sampled, and so we just need to throw. You know, if I had sampled in the fall of 2019. Or in the, sorry, in the fall of 2018. And then we all know what happened down there at Boonville in yep. 2019. And those samples are done. You know, yeah. I, I I have no confidence in those at that Absolutely. point. In the case of drought, where we didn't necessarily move soil, and to a certain extent on flood, where we don't lose soil, that's, uh, we haven't really talked about it, but the other kind of cornerstone of, the NutriTrack program is utilizing yield data to drive recommendations to. And the when we look at a recommendation, a soil test recommendation, it's made up of two parts. The soil test and what we need, what we need to provide to the soil and what we're taking out in either the hay bale or the grain cart at the end of the season. Right. And so we're removing nutrients out of the field with that grain or with that forage. And so we can utilize just a flat rate yield goal across that field, but that does, like you say, we've got a yield goal in 2019, we didn't have yield out there in that bottom. We can enter a zero in there and then take that portion of that recommendation off. And the same way in a bumper crop year, now we've had an excellent crop year in a lot of cases, you know, We've had moisture. There's been a couple of dry spots, but, you know, we've had some very good corn yields and we can put on that extra there. And the, the other thing using the data does is it kind of allows you, if you can get it turned around, you can be diligent in getting that data recorded into your rep. You can, I've had a good yield year. I probably need to spend a little more money for the end of the year from the tax man. And so I can adjust my recommendation up based on what I did this year. Right. Yep. Makes, Makes sense. sense. Replace what I removed. Sure. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Not to not to dig a, a giant rabbit hole, um, <laughs> but this might. So uh, when we're talking about 
depth of sampling, you know, at six inches, zero to six, we're typically taking a surface sample and that's just essentially what all of our wrecks are, are calculated upon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've heard some folks talking about no-till stratification, um, you know, where we're not mixing that plow layer all the time. Is there any reason to do anything different in those scenarios? Or I guess, you know, a forage scenario essentially would be the same, you know, same thing. We're not out there turning that soil mm -hmm. all the time. So mm -hmm. research has seemed to indicate that stratification in a no-till situation for the most part doesn't matter. Okay. As long as the bulk amount of plant available nutrient in that top six and two thirds inches over that average is there as long as we have that certain part per million level there we are going to be okay the there are situations for sure where we want to look at that it's important to know that you know how much stratification you do have um i mean when you think about it it kind of makes sense the as we get drier, yeah, our plants are going to dig deeper for more of those nutrients, more of those, uh, more of that moisture. But as we get a rainfall, that's where the majority of our root structure is at, is in that upper two inches. And that's where we typically see stratification. And you think about something like a forage, like fescue, that's all, you know, they it's definitely got some roots that go very deep. But the vast majority of that sod root system is in that upper two sure. to three inches. And that's where the majority of our nutrients are. Yeah. It's going to have plenty of opportunity to get what it needs out of that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, we do do stratification okay. samples when we're trying to do that. Uh, it can be important from time to time to understand something that's going on. But agronomically, there's there's enough advantages to no-tilling in my mind that it's it doesn't really pay to well and I, change I, that program. That was going to be my point. I just like... I mean, on my farm, you could tell me my farm's stratified, you know, all to heck, and it wouldn't mm -hmm. matter to me. It's not like I'm going to go out there and plow it up yeah. just because you, you told me that, you mm -hmm. know. I, mean, I guess you could look into, you know, being, uh, you know, being a little more outside the box on placing, you know. You could run a strip till bar or something like that, but there's mm -hmm. really not much else that you can do. I mean, you just know that it's that way, I guess. Yeah, so. yep. and be conscious of it when you're taking a soil sample. I mean, that's probably the, the biggest thing. To be, I mean, we train and try and we spend a lot of time troubleshooting. That's, you know, most of the stratification samples I do is then we get a set of results that come back that we don't expect. And, okay, let's go out, do some stratification samples and see if possibly we got the wrong depth. If somebody went out there and it was very dry, it was hard to get to depth. Yeah, I was just going to say and they got dry. And they pulled a shallow sample because it was just hard to get the probe in. Right. At that time, that's, you know, right. predominantly. And so we go out, do some checks and see doesn't make sense and if we do see that stratification maybe we need to go out and resample that field right and quality control it yeah cool well i think we've hit on a lot of stuff here is there anything anything else you've got cameron before i don't think closing? so i think we pretty much wrapped up kind of what we we're expecting to think talk about today okay cool dad closing thoughts as far as nutritrack soil sampling <laughs> We we super appreciate you doing this interview. It's always learned something whenever you yes. talk, and um, so very very much appreciate it. 
Uh, I always learn something when you talk, and that's kind of why I chose you to be one of our first guests on the podcast, because not everybody else gets the opportunity to hear it all the time. So much appreciated. What, anything else you want to close everybody out with? I know. I don't have anything. We've covered a lot of different topics today, and it, uh, I don't know. Maybe we made things for future podcasts or so. <laughs> questions for more podcasts in the future. Yeah, like Because it's a, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like There's Adam a, said, I, I thought it was great. I mean, there at the beginning, I felt like I was getting lost in all the things I was learning. I forgot to even ask questions. I thought it was Adam. Adam podcast show for a minute. <laughs> Nobody okay. wants to hear that. Yeah. So. <laughs> so. No, thank you cool. for having me on. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Be safe out there. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.